Welcome to Get Down to College Business. We will identify strategies that could make the difference between keeping university doors open and closing them for good. I'm pulling in business experts and higher ed leaders to debate the merits of strategies that could save the future of higher ed. I'm your host, Sarah Holton, PhD. Let's get down to college business. Hi, everyone. This is Sarah Holton, PhD, and your host on Get Down to College Business. I'm joined today by Scott Flanagan, Senior Consultant and Senior Executive Coach at Academic Search, a leading search firm for higher ed. Scott is also a past president at Edgewood College in Madison, Wisconsin. Welcome, Scott. Thanks, Sarah. Great to be with you. Yeah, I'm delighted to have you join us today. So you're here to talk to us a bit about executive searches, which of course you know quite a bit about, and particularly the process of filling an executive position, such as a president or a provost. We know that they have a price tag. So Scott, you're here today to walk us through how colleges can prepare to enter the executive search by knowing when it makes sense to use a search firm, how much a search could cost in money and time, and how internal succession planning can be advantageous. So I want to start with what's probably an obvious question. What do you think about whether colleges should outsource executive searches for top leaders? Like, when does it make sense for a college to conduct an executive search? And when doesn't it make sense to do a search? Yeah, well, like with any uh, good question, right, the answer is it depends. And what it depends on, I think if there are situations where there's really a qualified candidate, I mean, especially given the talent pool right now in the competition for talent. If there's a terrific candidate internal, that may be a situation where it doesn't make sense to do an external search. The other way to flip it is what do search firms or processes bring, right? So what do they bring? They bring clarity about what you're looking for. They can bring in a, a network of candidates and they can bring advice, facilitation, and support. So if you say, hey, listen, we already know what we're looking for. We don't need help with that. Okay. You don't need a network because either the pool is likely so relatively known to you that there's not much value added, then you wouldn't need to engage with somebody to do that. Or you feel like people have enough capacity to do crazy things like schedule meetings and have reference calls and all the rest of the stuff that goes into the hiring process. If you could sort of satisfy all those needs without using a firm, then often it makes sense to, to keep it in-house. And as a president, there were some situations where I used to search firm and some where I didn't. Did you kind of have like your mental model for like when to do it versus when not? And I mean, I know you talked a bit about like, if I've already got some strong candidates internally, I'm going to skip the search. Or was sometimes you're kind of looking for more? Like, did you have an idea of when you would use one when you didn't when you were a president? You know, in some situations, institutions decide that even if there is a really strong person internally, that they just want a change in direction or a change in leadership. And that would be a situation where you'd say, even if we had all that, you might go. So sometimes there's sort of a, a change in direction that's either signaled or exemplified by a decision to look maybe outside. I'm in a conversation right now with the campus who thinks that they have a good network, but they want to be really sure that they've sort of expanded that network beyond what they normally would. And so they're talking with us about how we can help in that process. Those are some other considerations, Sarah. Tell me about what a college should consider when deciding whether to hire a search firm, and particularly in terms of like the budget. And then you and I have spoken previously about this, and you talked a bit about like the cost of not conducting 
a search. So can you tell me a little bit about the financial considerations and all of this? Well, like with everything, you know, the title of this is the cost of the, of the search, but you know, you're putting that alongside the benefits, you're putting that alongside risks. And I used to work in admissions, right? So I think pretty probabilistically, you know, you can't say, well, if you do an external search, therefore this will be successful. There are places that don't use firms that have terrific searches. There are places that do that have things that go sideways. So it's all about improving your, your probabilities of it. But I think sometimes folks will look at the potentially may look at the cost. Generally speaking, at the senior level, you're looking at about a third to 40% of an annual salary. So just generally speaking, lots of variations around what's included and all that, but without getting into detail, that, that gives you a ballpark. So when we think about that, you might say, well, that's expensive. And it may be, the question is, again, do you have the capacity to do those other things yourself in such a way that you're confident that you wouldn't need to use that expenditure? And what's the cost of maybe getting it wrong if you try to do things sort of on the cheap? And again, from experience, it did it both ways. And so there's no right answer or wrong answer. But, you know, in addition to considering the cost, part of the question is, and what do we get for that? And of course, then at the end of the day, like any of us as consumers, whether personal or organizational, we're saying, is, does it appear to be worth it? And I would imagine as a search firm, you can tap into candidate pools that the average administrator in a higher ed area just wouldn't have access to. That's right. Right. You have a Rolodex, the metaphorical one, that can find people that we didn't even know existed. So that might be a good fit. You and I have also spoken about this idea of maybe not going and doing an external search, but rather looking internally. And that whole idea of promoting from within and doing internal leadership training and really kind of, you know, focusing on internal talent. Tell me about that. Like, how do you see that playing out, especially in this war for good talent that we all seem to be a part of right now? Tell me about, you know, kind of growing the next generation of leaders for these executive roles. Well, one would hope that as educational institutions, we would extend that concept to the faculty and staff and administrators, but we also know sometimes in our focus on students, you know, that can get lost. And of course, that's fascinating in that in industry, there's much more of this focus on sort of growing leaders than there is in, in higher ed, which in many ways is about expanding leadership. So the, I mean, internal talent at minimum, right, it's a huge retention tool, whether it's for promotion or not. But increasingly, as positions get more and more difficult to fill, A, and B, you know, internal candidates are known in a way that I think kind of mitigates the, a lot of the risk, right? Internal candidates may be slightly different than you expected in a role. It's not perfect, but you have a pretty good idea what you're getting into, and so do they. And I think both of those are pretty important pieces. So I think it's hard to sort of start up planning process like for a person. I think that's part of that's just an institutional mindset around how do we cultivate talent and perhaps to identify for high performing folks, maybe it's executive coaching. We're starting to do some of that at, at, at academic search or mentoring other leadership opportunities. Those abound in higher ed. Those can all be ways to not only enhance the skills of the people in your organization, but also sort of grow people that are likeliest to be prepared for the particular organizational culture that each institution represents. 
Yeah, and I think you bring up a good point about culture. You know, they were hired in the first place for a reason. Probably they were a good cultural fit or they've been enculturated within that organization. Okay, so I want to go back to this idea of internal leadership training, which I just love. You spoke a bit about executive coaching, mentorship, maybe letting them try out some other leadership opportunities. Can you think of other ways to meaningfully create a pool of potential internal talent for these executive roles? Well, I mean, so, right. So one is where we touched on that executive coaching, mentoring, sort of somebody to help the person stretch opportunities. And I remember a situation, you know, when I was an executive vice president, I can't remember who had done the research. I can't remember it was ACE or AGB, but someone like that had done some research and showed how presidents spent their time. And I sat down with my president, who was my mentor, and we mapped out, okay, I've done this, I've done this, I've done this. Here's a gap area. How do we put on the training wheels? so that I can get some experiences. So that idea of stretch opportunities that benefits, of course, the the organization, it also benefits the individual, and you get a chance to see in real time, hey, how does this person take to this or not? It's a test run in some ways. So I'm hearing you say you find some internal candidates, you create some sort of skills gap analysis, and then you work towards growing those skills. Yeah, I mean, and that was a specific example of when a particular position was in mind. And I know sometimes that's not always the case. I think something else that gets overlooked, and I've benefited from it a lot, and the people I've talked with and observed have as well, but that is the opportunity to get engaged externally. So one of the concerns about external candidates, they expose you to other institutions, best practices, things to avoid, all the rest of that without you leaving the current institution. So I think those are some other ones, Sarah, that personally I've benefited from and some of those I've seen as ways to broaden the experience set without having to leave the campus position to to make that happen. Yeah, those are really good, I think, tips for everyone, right? Like you can still get external experience and while you're still working in the organization and maybe working toward a specific or just general leadership goals. Tell me about external networking to build relationships for candidacy in the future. What what does that even look like? What is there a best type of person on on the team to do this? Tell me how that works. So when you're talking in this context, are you talking about to for the institution to contact candidates or for candidates to get on the radar screen? I think really could work both ways, but I was thinking more of the latter for you to be able to kind of build a bench of depth outside your own internal team. So let's say a school is looking for a type of person that maybe they haven't employed before or just a different skill set they want to bring in. What, What kind of that external networking, how does that look or how does that even work? Well, that's one of those things that's so hard for a campus to do, right? Because you're sort of doing it in reaction to something that where a firm can be helpful in sort of in all likelihood having done something similar at some place similar enough that to be able to know who some of the, the folks are. That's one of the things that sort of unlike internal personnel development, it's just really hard for organizations, not impossible, I mean, for roles like financial officer, an advancement person, which might reasonably draw from a local community. Well, you tap into that local community, right? That may be inviting people to serve on advisory boards. Again, you're not going to do that when there's an opening. You're going to do that as a way to sort of precast the net or build the network. But what becomes hard is when that's not done and you say, now we want to start identifying folks, 
it, it's pretty hard to do in, in the short term. Right. And then there's, the, I would imagine there's a gap between when we know we have a position to fill and being able to fill it. So do we go internally, externally? Do we use a search? And I would imagine that it's advantageous for the team to kind of have ideas of like where, what we're going to do with this, where we're going to go. You had mentioned earlier that, you know, there's the committee work, if there's a search committee formed or if there's administrative assistance kind of serving as the primary contact for the executive search, that they have to spend a lot of time creating a leadership agenda, maybe doing some pre-recruitment efforts. Do you have a sense of what kind of time commitment that takes from kind of an employee or staff side to kind of get all the materials and all the logistics ready for a search firm to come in and, and run with it? Yeah, it really varies. I mean, I've worked with campuses that basically said, here's what we're looking for. Here are the criteria, you know, sharpen this up and go. I've worked with others that say, we have this vacancy. Can you help me with that? And I say, sure. You know, what are you looking for? And they say, well, here's the job description. I say, yeah, but what are you looking for? Right. What do you want to see this person achieve? And they say, well, we really don't know. And then in that case, that's when you get in the committee meeting. In one case, I, I think I spent five days on with constituent groups to try to get that my time, but that's also staff time and faculty time and all the rest. So it really runs the gamut. But the institution, you know, there's going to be somebody who needs to do a lot of the logistical, the administrative work. It's going to require certainly people from marketing and human resources to help facilitate that. And certainly the members of the search committee, their time. I would suspect my observation is that it is all those are reduced when you use a firm. The marketing people have a draft to react to rather than having to write it themselves, for example. HR will give responses to something rather than having to sort of do it from whole cloth. You know, committee chairs will have draft agendas and drafts to be able to work with rather than having to create things. So I can't put a, a time on it, Sarah, because it really sort of varies. Usually the intense times are at the front end in creating that perspective. And then at the back end, when it's screening, interviewing, and selection, you're going to be into the tens or the dozens of hours for a lot of your committee members. So colleges should definitely prepare for that, right? This idea of like, it's not just handing something over, but you need a place to start too. So even if you're helping them through the process of refining the goals and the performance expectations, there's still quite a bit of time on task. That's right. Yeah. yeah. Have you found that there's particular types of positions that just seem to take a long time to fill? Well, I think right now, anything in healthcare is just hyper competitive. Science is math. I think at the senior level, finance people and enrollment people are really scarce. And then I think institutions that perhaps have a narrow niche, perhaps if there's a religious requirement, that's part of the role or part of the identity of the institution that will obviously narrow the candidate pool to meet that requirement. You know, some of it's a combination of institution type. And then on top of that, you overlay some of the really high demand areas right now. Those are the types of, of challenges. But I would say, you know, just about every position right now, it's really competitive for, for top quality talent. Well, I sort of assume you have a crystal ball in front of you. So can you make some predictions about whether this, the, the war for talent right now will continue or do you see it shifting at all in the future? What's your best prediction on where we're going with filling some of these really tough to fill executive roles? My suspicion is in the short term, I don't see it changing much. And the reasons for that are 
demographic. There will continue, I think, to be more retirements at the senior level. It has been a really astounding level of turnover. And of course, that creates ripple effects as that cascades throughout the organization. I think especially at that senior level, you think about positions like presidents and provosts, vice president for academic enrollment management, as an example. There are, I think, fewer people who are excited to pursue those roles than there were, you know, 20 years ago. And again, some of that's demographic, but some is that they can see what the person maybe ahead of them is having to work on. And it is challenging and daunting, really rewarding work, but it's not work that you enter into sort of halfway. So I think between retirement's just sort of a, a natural turnover level and the increasing challenges and pressures that are coming with these roles. I see that as that's my best guess for, for what the near term looks like. All right, Scott, I appreciate what you have shared with us so far. And I just want to kind of wrap up with a question about what you've been a president, you know, you're in a search firm. What's your best advice for college leaders in hoping to operate a viable institution? It could be related to executive searches, but maybe it's related to something else. So what's your best advice for leaders? I think there are a few things that come top of mind. I think one is just clarity. You know, where are you realistically and where are you going? And to be clear about that with others. As leaders, sometimes one of our greatest assets are those that we work with, whether that's trustees, or faculty, staff, students, our local communities. And to get them engaged in creating the reality that you want is a really important. Leadership can't be done. It's not a solitary sport. And so engaging with others becomes so important in that. When I observe, whether it's search or, or my time on campus, I think handling the tough decisions when they present a personal example is you sort of have that ache or pain and you wait for it to go away. And it tends to get worse more often than it goes away. And it tends to be less of a deal if you handle it in real time than if you wait. So I think that's the same with some of the difficult decisions. But what goes with that, I think, is the importance of celebration. I mean, these institutions, the ones I work with and all those across the country, do amazing work in transforming the lives of the students that they serve and enriching you know, our nation and our world and the communities and job preparation and citizenship and spiritual development and, and all the rest. And so taking moments like the kind like commencements, which I know are happening this weekend and honors, you know, to celebrate those accomplishments because all the rest of those pieces exist to be able to create that kind of change in the lives of the students that, that these institutions serve. So those are some of the things that, that come top of mind, Sarah, when I think about you know, that's not brass tax stuff, I suppose, but hopefully some insights that, that maybe have some, carry some weight for your listeners. Thank you so much, Scott. Indeed, they were very awesome insights for all of us. I appreciate your time today. Thanks, Sarah. I've really enjoyed the conversation. To support the cause of the affordable college experience, visit us at highlevelleadership.com. Read our blog and join our email list to get connected. Follow us and leave a positive review on your favorite podcast app. Let's get down to college business.